Welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I'm your host, Dave, and it's book day on the show. I say it's book day because today's episode, I interview Julia and Eric LeWald about their book previously on X-Men. Excuse me. Previously on X-Men. If you remember the 90s X-Men animated series, it was absolutely fantastic. It's a critical cornerstone of comic book adaptations. I love it, and it, it really did have a huge influence on me. And I was so excited to find out that the uh, that Eric LeWald was going to be at Momocon and then meeting the Lewalds, they are delightful. You guys, uh, they they couldn't be any sweeter and more wonderful. I absolutely love talking to them. You're going to love listening to them. This episode is great. This is, you know, I'm proud of every single episode I do here, uh, each and every Friday at NeedlessThingsPodcast.com. But this episode is one of those that I have sort of an extra little bit of joy radiating around my heart because it was just... It, it, one, the subject matter is something that's so important to me, uh, but two, the Lewalds were just wonderful, and I hope I'm not mangling their last names uh, as I say them. It's L-E-W-A-L-D, so Lewald is what I'm going with, and I'm probably putting a little more exotic uh, enunciation on it than, than maybe it should have, but sometimes that's what I do. So this episode is great. So hang in there through my intro where I'm plugging a couple of things. First of all, uh, you need to go right now to xmentas.com. Hang on. You know what? I'm going to verify that that's correct because I have it in my notes, and uh, I'm, I'm just like, this doesn't seem right to me. Oh, look, I'm right. Look how good I am at remembering facts and putting things over. xmentas.com is where you can go to find out about this wonderful book uh, that you should order immediately right now because it has so many incredible anecdotes about the creation of that show, what went into it, uh, how the seasons were laid out, how they chose what to do. Because uh, today's interview, obviously, we talk about all of those things, but the book gets so much more in-depth, so much more expansive. Basically, any question you've ever had about X-Men uh, the the cartoon, and it's hard for me to designate that because it was not called X-Men, the animated series. Uh, it, it was just X-Men because it was the cartoon called X-Men. It would be like calling Transformers the animated series. Well, I know it was just Transformers, uh, but, but we have to say X-Men, the animated series, because now, partially due to the success of this show, there are X-Men in so many other forms of media. You have the X-Men movies, you have the other X-Men cartoons, Wolverine and the X-Men, X-Men uh, Evolution. So you have to specify. You can't just say X-Men because people love X-Men. And uh, because of this show, like I said, because of this show, uh, we have more X-Men. 
So there you go. Uh, great interview. Super stoked about it. You guys are going to love it. Now I have to talk about another book, and this book is one that I'm in. I, ladies and gentlemen, Phantomaniacs everywhere, am now a published author. Uh, thanks to a fellow named Jim Beard and also our friends Bobby Nash and Joe Crow. And I honestly cannot remember at this point if it was Bobby or Joe who got to me first about this book. I believe it was Bobby. And uh, I think Joe sent me a message after I had responded to Bobby and to Jim. Uh, but when Joe sent me the message, I just said, oh, that sounds great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Because, uh, you know, I, wh what's the point of saying I already heard about this? I'm on it. Why not just say, oh, that's great. Awesome. Thanks for the heads up, man. Uh, but anyway, this was like just over a month ago. And now this book is out and I'm part of it. Uh, uh, and it's just absolutely amazing to me that I'm a published author alongside folks like our friends James Palmer and Mark Maddox. Uh, there's Dave West, Toys for a Troublemaker. I'm sitting here looking at the table of contents on Amazon, which if you uh, have an Andal, uh, Andal, Amazon Kindle Unlimited, three words I've never said out loud together before, so I appreciate your patience uh, in hanging in there with me. Uh, if you've got the Amazon Kindle Unlimited, you can read this book for free, or you can go to needlessthingspodcast.com, click on the Amazon box, go in there, order it. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it helps out Needless Things. Uh, but Toys for a Troublemaker by Dave West. And, and guess what? Right after my essay is Jerry Ordway. Yes, Jerry Ordway is in this book. Justin Bell is in this book. This uh, I, I cannot believe some of the names that uh, Fabian Nishiza, I, I apologize for mangling that gentleman's last name. Uh, he is one of my uh, 90s comic book heroes. Uh, but anyway, it is called The Joy of Joe, Memories of America's Movable Fighting Man from Today's Grown-Up Kids. And it's just a bunch of people who've written about the effect that G.I. Joe has had on their lives. And I'm one of those people, and I'm a published author, and it's crazy. And now it is time to maybe sit down and finally figure out what kind of book I want to put together uh, for my own self. But, uh, like I said, you can order this book from Amazon through NeedlessThingsPodcast.com, of course. Or you can find me at a convention. I have copies that I bought expressly for the purpose of carrying around because as you guys know especially if you listen to the patron cast when that was still a thing i one of my issues at conventions is i i don't have a thing this is what i do and this is just online i, I can't carry a podcast around with me uh, or a website around with me to to show to people to sit at a table and say here is my here is my podcast. Let me sign one for you. And and look, I realize it's a little egotistical of me to be saying I can sign things, but I have a thing to sign. So if you if you're like, hey, I would like to have this GI Joe book, which if you're a fan of GI Joe, you would like to have it. And uh, you know, I, my 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 pal Dave, who I've been listening to for five years now on his podcast, or or possibly even following along. Uh, online for for a decade now 
I like this guy. I'd like to buy this book. And, and hey, if I'm going to buy it from him, why not have him scribble a little something inside of it? And I'll do that for you at a convention. Uh, so find me or, or just buy it online uh, if you don't want to interact with me at all, which, believe me, I've met me, so I understand if, if that's not necessarily appealing to you. So, yeah, two books that you guys need to track down because G.I. Joe and X-Men, as you well know, those are the two things, two of the main things that made me who I am today. Star Wars, obviously, would probably be number one as far as the formative years, but G.I. Joe and X-Men both, uh, as far as comic books go especially, are just ingrained into my DNA. And and so I'm, I'm thrilled today to be telling you guys about these two books uh, that you absolutely need to track down, whether it's from me or, hey, if you see Julia and Eric at a convention, buy the book from them and talk to them because they're freaking amazing. And now you're going to get to hear for yourselves just how amazing they are as we talk to them on the Needless Things podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, Phantomaniacs, as you know, I was recently at Momocon in Atlanta for the very first time, and I was very excited to be able to meet uh, some people responsible for one of the big pop culture phenomenons of, of my life, certainly, and of the 90s, uh, and that is Julia and Eric LaWald, who were part of the creative force behind the 90s X-Men animated series, which we'll, we'll get into the title designation of that show uh, in just a minute here, because I want to discuss that. Uh, but Julia and Eric, welcome to the Needless Things podcast. Well, thank you so much for having us on. And I think we got to cross paths. We were first timers at Momocom this year. Yeah, thanks, Dave. We were, yeah, it's our, our first time there in Atlanta. Yeah, how did you guys end up there? <laughs> Fair question. <laughs> yeah, well, we just, uh, as soon as we finished this, uh, the book about the making of the series uh, back in November, we started reaching out to various cons, and they were one of the first ones to write back and say, we'd love to have you, and we'll set you up a couple panels, and we'll set you up a table, and fly you out. So, uh, and I, uh, I, I was I was born in Atlanta, grew up in, tennis, in Tennessee, so it was a nice kind of homecoming for me. And I have a couple, three cousins there in Atlanta. It, it was just a nice fit, but because we were very excited to try and get news out about the book, but so many cons, as they need to you know, require things to sort of be submitted six months in advance. So we're kind of feeling our way through this. And this was, again, one of the ones we reached out to thinking Atlanta, and it mm-hmm. looks like a great con. And we know it was, it was more anime than, than animation, which is cool. I mean, we're seeing a lot more you know, Japanese schoolgirls than we were seeing Batman or, or X-Men. <laughs> but uh, still, there were, there, were plenty, there were plenty of uh, X-Men fans there, and it was, it was great fun talking to them. Well, and it really was. It, it felt like a good fit for you guys because it is very. It's very much animation, uh, video gaming. Like I, I feel like that that X Men cartoon fits into the culture really well there. And it wasn't so. There wasn't so much different stuff because now so many of the pop culture conventions try to be so many different things. Right. That's true too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They try to like 
they try to be new Hollywood and and you know nothing. They originated as comic bookers or science fiction conventions, and they've really grown into you know a lot of the other more mainstream pop culture kind of trying you know taking over. And that it's it's nice to have more you know more of the, the comic book animation focused people there at the at the con. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It, it it was I think it was a great environment where nobody nobody got lost in the shuffle amongst all of the stuff. Like it wasn't overwhelming to be there. Yeah. Well, you said. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, yeah. I need I need yeah. to choose my words better because I was at at, at forty two years old. I was extremely overwhelmed by things that I had no idea what they are. Um, oh, yeah, same here. But it was it was a great well, con. It was, that, yeah, nice, just a wonderful con. Nice, nice people and a, and a nice nice atmosphere. We mm-hmm. we've been to places like San Diego where it's not much larger building, but three times the people, and it's like the Tokyo subway or something. It's just it can get unpleasant. This place, you know, the, they had it nicely laid out, and there were a lot of people there, but it, it never felt overcrowded, and and it, it was it was a it was a pleasant pleasant, and it was nicely yes. laid out. Gamers in one corner. I mean, they had everything very very simple and very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Well, and I felt that my my big takeaway was I felt like the attendees were all just very happy and excited to be there, and there was none of the the angst or bitterness or any of that kind of thing. They just, there was such a good vibe in that place. I really dug it. Yeah, yes, well, absolutely. So. Agreed, agreed. So right. anyway, so, so you grew up on uh, the X-Men show, huh? I did, I did. Uh, I was in 92, uh, I was in high school, and a lot of the animation that I loved growing up in the 80s was like G.I. Joe and Transformers uh, that kind of stuff, you know, the big action, sure. that the the Reagan action cartoons. Yeah. Uh, and by the nineties, uh, there there were th- things couldn't keep my attention like they did then because I, you know, I was in high school. Other things were capturing my interest. I was reading actual comic books at that point, and just you know, when you once you hit the high school college age, uh. You know, things change. You leave you, you leave behind cartoons and wrestling and whatever for a couple of years at least mm-hmm. uh, until, until you return to them. But uh, X-Men was something that the, my two big comic books that turned me into a comic collector were Larry Hama's G.I. Joe and Chris Claremont's Uncanny X-Men. Uh and they were, and, and we'll actually talk a little bit about my first X-Men issues, because I want to ask you about one of the episodes that pertains. Uh, but I, I started with the Uncanny X-Men and that storytelling and that ongoing, that amazing, never-ending story arc. Uh, it, it sucked me in. So when the cartoon started, I mean, the X-Men, are they're my love. I'm not an Avengers guy. Uh I am a Spider-Man guy, but I never got into... To, to me, the Avengers was the other side of Marvel, uh, and I'm an X-Men guy. What about you guys? Prior to the cartoon, what was your what was your awareness of the X-Men? Well, here, here comes the dark reveal. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, uh, on, on, among the staff, it was kind of evenly split. There was half the guys... The and just, girls. And girls that, that just loved them that just the books loved the books Mm -hmm. for you know for 25 years since they were little and and had encyclopedic knowledge of them and were just so jazzed they couldn't imagine uh you know a better you know getting this gig offered to them in early 90 the first of 92 Mm -hmm. and then on the other side there were a few of us uh the head head writer mark edens and i and julie and others 
that we barely knew who they were. We, you know, we'd read other comic books and, and we'd had other interests and we were just about everybody was in their, you know, early to mid thirties and we were on to other stuff. And this thing comes out and the half of the people that knew what it was said, Oh guys, oh guys, this is going to be amazing. You just don't understand. <laughs> and we were saying, okay, cool. You know, we just, we loved the, the vibe that was coming out of it that, that suddenly this new network, this little Fox network that was half a network and needed some attention, wanted someone to do something much more adult. And we'd worked with them, the Fox, before with the same people there on Beetlejuice for a year. Uh, so oh, we knew wow. they were they we knew they were wonderful people. That's how that's how I got the gig was was having done a year of Beetlejuice for for Fox for Margaret and Sydney there. And so when I got the call the night before the big meeting. Um, he said, the great news, we're, we're, we, we've got X-Men going, want you to be in charge of the writing. And I said, I'm gonna, Stan Lee and Heinz Bond and 40 people are going to be in the room tomorrow. We're all going to talk about what the series is going to be. And I just looked, and I was on the other end of the phone, and you know, there's no internet. There's nowhere, you know, nowhere to check up with. I said, well, well, great. I think I'll keep my mouth shut because I don't really know who most of them are. <laughs> and so I, that first meeting was a real learning experience, and I nodded a lot. And about a weekend, uh, through all the friends involved in the show that, that knew what they are talking about, I got a serious immersion uh, in them, and it was it was cool after that. But that, that first day, I had to bite my tongue a lot. <laughs> yeah, I remember back then in 92, this is February 92, yeah. right? That again, it, the internet wasn't a real thing for any of this yet, and comic book stores, trade paperbacks, and and annuals were still a new-ish thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there had been the Superman, uh, the Christopher Reeve movies. There had been the Batman movies. There, there had been no real. There had been no Marvel movies. Zero. Right. Which is hard to imagine now that that was so. When we we're getting started on this, it was kind. It ended up kind of nice because there wasn't this this mass of millions of people with expectations about what we were writing. We the we just got to sit down and look over what had been written over the previous 25, 30 years and decide which little bits we liked. And they let us do that rather than having an agenda. So we didn't really get, you know, creative intrusion from anybody, from Marvel, from Fox. They just wanted us to write the most intense stories we could within the bounds of the X-Men canon within their world. So there were some writers that had a, a, you know, a favorite issue or two that they were hoping to get adapted, but mostly, mostly the stories were just what does this particular screenwriter think is the coolest storm story they can think of. And we would just use bits and pieces. So, so it was, it was a, it was a strange, interesting time. As Julie was saying, if we, if we had a question about, an old issue, and we didn't have a copy, and our friends didn't have a copy, and the comic book store didn't have a copy. We'd call Marvel in New York City, in New York City, three thousand miles away, and sometimes they wouldn't have it. But if they had it, they would Xerox it and snail mail it. So, like a week later, we'd get a bleary black and white copy of this just to, <laughs> to find out exactly what happened in whatever episode we were curious about. But it was it took the the thing that saved us was. Was having producers and artists that knew the that knew the characters and books and a thing called the Marvel Universe. There was a 1998, I mean 1988 version of it that had every character, every power, every. Oh, the, the handbook. Yeah, the handbook this mass. Yeah, they would yeah. come out in individual handbooks, but then they collect them as a big yes, yes, a big hardbound. 
And the producer, Larry Houston, gave me a Xerox of that. So I'd think, well, what's what's an intense story for Beast? And I'd read up on Beast and all the people he'd interacted with over the years. And I'd come up with a story that was original, but then I'd go back and I'd populate it with bits and pieces with people from the books. And if I could, if I could find it, actual incidents from, from episodes that would fit there. Other some other, you know, other writers would pitch me stuff that was was closer to the to the issues, but in my case, it was it was just starting with the characters and just coming up with uh, the, the story, you know, the best story I could. And it's very flattering, you know, all these years later for folks to uh, you know, really appreciate the show and that people we've heard more than once, more than one person that they feel it's the most effective adaptation of of the X Men stories. But the the truth is. They weren't slavishly devoted to individual um, uh, story arcs from from the comic books because those are basically two different muscles. But yeah. folks have very fond memories of it, and I think that speaks to the caliber of the writing and and the folks who were involved in it that made it made it what it was or feel yeah. like an X Men show. And you made an issue point earlier about Chris Claremont, who mm-hmm. is obviously the most uh, influential of the of the, the the books that we took from. We yes. looked at the early books, and they seemed very different and didn't really have the the feel that the 75 and on, you know, redo of the X-Men did. Mm-hmm. So we were really focused on the, the later uh, the later books. But one of the challenges with with taking up bits and pieces with, with, with using stories from that era was that Chris loved to stretch out stories, as you were saying earlier, 15, 20 uh, issues and overlap five or six of them. To the point where there's an anecdote where Len Wein, who is wonderful, our dear friend who worked on the show, wonderful writer, was was like the head guy starting the '75 X-Men, and who handed it off to Chris. He said Chris would would frustrate him because, and he'd just go and he'd almost shake Chris and say, "Finish your story, for God's sake!" <laughs> and that was that was uh, indicative of how intricate and overlapping Claremont stories tend to be. So if we're yes. just looking for one, like to pull out. Like what's the core of, uh, say, the Phoenix saga? There are four or five other stories going on at once. Sure. You know, secondary stories that we we, we push to put them aside and and just try to focus on a, a simple so that we can tell it in a sensical, logical way in a TV show, which is kind of Julie said, kind of a little bit of a different muscle. So there was a lot. Use it, there was a lot of picking out bits and pieces that we then would restring together. For, you know to make it work as a TV story well that's a that's a perfect point actually for me to ask about uh, the colony because my first x-men issues were the ones uh, with the brood where Wolverine gets infected by the brood mm-hmm. uh, that was the I, I was visiting my grandparents up in North Carolina and and it was the old school spinner rack with the comics on it oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. and i picked out uh, a batman comic uh a couple other comics but that cover with wolverine in mid transformation i think by wills Portacio, but if i'm wrong i apologize to everybody in the world uh but i saw that cover and i was like i don't know what this is i don't know what uncanny x-men are but this looks amazing because I was just starting to appreciate monsters and horror and superheroes and in the way that you do when you, you know, get to be 10 or 11 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that story arc was my first exposure. And then in a single episode, the colony, I, I think what you guys did was 
adapt in the very best way possible, and that's by picking, taking the spirit of stories and characters and taking the important points and breaking them down and streamlining them and making them palatable in a, in a kinetic form rather than page by page by page, like the comic. And I think, you know, I, I, when something is too beholden to the source material, I think it's less interesting. I would much rather see somebody say, okay, let's take the idea of the brood and let's just distill it down to the most interesting part of that story, which is what I think you did with the colony, which by the way, why the colony and not the brood? Again, funny you should ask. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just jumping back to a point Eric had made that um, the, the production side of Marvel, the animated series was based here out of Los Angeles. And, but, but Marvel itself was, uh, the company was based in New York City. So you're on the East Coast right now and we're here in the West Coast. If, if there was any questions that Eric might have <laughs> by about two o'clock on a Friday, they wouldn't get answered until Monday morning. Oh my gosh. Shut down. Email really wasn't in, in vogue at that point. It wasn't very, it, it didn't, it wasn't fast, uh, if you can believe that. But so, um, I believe we spoke with uh, Larry Houston about this issue, uh, the colony versus the brood. And it was simply, not simply, but at the time it was, okay, in the telling of this story, for the purposes of X-Men animated series, is Marvel giving us, do we have Marvel's complete and total blessing? Or do we, do we need to just um, sort of create our own story for the sake of the show and that Marvel will be okay with it? And in, at the early stages where it's like, well, we're not sure if Marvel's going to you know, give us the complete stamp of approval, but, but they like what we're doing, so go ahead. That's when things required a, a, diff- a name change for, like, first draft and then next season even. Oh, no, they were cool with that story. You can start calling them this. So, it, it, oh, oh, okay. So I think this one kind of just fell through the cracks like that. As Julia was saying, when we first, uh, when, when she and... Uh, Bob Skier and Marty Eisenberg oh, yeah. adapted uh, Days of Future Past. If you look, check out the storyboard that we used, we called it uh, Future Tense. It was just called Future Tense. We oh, weren't yeah. sure yeah. if they were going to be comfortable days. using that name, or and then it, since we had to change it around somewhat for to fit TV and to fit our our cast, we weren't sure if they were going to want us to use it or not. So at some point, uh, whoever. I, I remember it was a, an outside pitch because I didn't know the Brood story uh, when when we were going along. So one of the writers that did know the books better pitched that story. Um, I'm sure there was some discussion with Marvel. Can do we use the name of the Brood? Is some, some issue with it? Is this going to be close enough to the books that we want to keep it, or do we want to make it something like that? And, and at some point, and I it's, it's lost in the sands of time. Someone. <laughs> Made a decision to to not call the brood, and that and that is odd because usually nine out of ten times the default position was choose the the name from the books, mm-hmm. and so if they didn't, there usually should have been some sort of reason for it. It's just it's not one that uh, it's not one that, that that comes to mind, or I think that Larry uh, that Larry could remember, but you can obviously tell by the the way we played it, it, it was the brood for sure. Now, typically when you hear something like, oh, use the name from the books, it's an attempt to create a certain amount of synergy because the the X-Men, the, the cartoon, 
was for an entire generation their exposure to Marvel's mutants, their it's that's the X-Men they know is the X-Men from the animated series. And it's actually funny that you mentioned, uh, you know, it not having the brand awareness of Batman or, or certain or Superman. So mm-hmm. you, you had less fan expectation built in than those franchises would. But then later on when the X-Men live action movie came out in 2000, your show was part of fan expectation for that movie. Right. Yeah, absolutely. uh, A person we haven't mentioned yet, uh, just in terms of how X-Men, the animated series, even got going, is a woman named Margaret Lesh. And you don't hear it very often, but uh, as as executive, as president of the newly formed then Fox Kids Network, Margaret was the one who who was saying, we are making an X-Men show. And the reason for that was she had been an executive at Marvel itself for eight years. Marvel Productions. Marvel Productions. Okay. And had gone to ABC, NBC, CBS every year pitching X Men and or just just any almost any Marvel character, and they were all just saying, yeah. "No way, there's too small an audience. It's just comic book geeks. We can't, you know, we that's that 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 won't won't sell. It'll be dead. It'll be it'll be dead in three weeks." Well, because so, up to that point, there had been in the early '80s, we had Spider Man and his amazing friends, right? And then I think. What was Pride? Pride of the X Men. That was a one off. That was the one off, but that was and that was like straight. I, I think maybe it aired on a network once, yeah. and went to VHS. But yeah, I think by the time in when the X Men when you guys started, there Marvel really didn't have anything going on movies, no. TV, or anything. <laughs> anything. And they're in the midst of various financial upheavals. Uh, yeah, yeah. They were small and they're kind of falling apart. Margaret, actually, in the, our two, uh, the, the two lead writers on the show, uh, myself and Mark Edens, again, both from ten, from Tennessee, so we're local local guys. Uh, the uh, the two artists in charge, the designer, supervising producer named Will Minio, who's a big Marvel guy from the time he was you know ten years old, uh, and Larry Houston, uh, big X Men. Fan and and one you know was in charge of all the storyboards and all the artists hiring all the artists. Uh, those guys had had a chance to work with Margaret Lesh and Sydney Iwaner, the two executives now involved, on Pride of the X Men. That was I don't know if we told you this at the table, but that was specifically Margaret sneaking some money. She had had another show, I think a RoboCop show. Yes, yes. The money for the last episode, and instead of producing a thirteenth episode for that. She produced this one-off of the X-Men to prove to these networks that would never listen to her how good the X-Men could be. It was her, her sales tool. And unfortunately, they had good art, they had good animation, yeah. but they had like every, you know, 30 different Marvel executives in different divisions, or all sorts of cooks trying to decide what the story should be, who should be in it, and okay, we've got 25 years worth of characters how do we showcase all of them in 22 minutes and so the story became a mishmash yeah and as sydney i wanted to point it out of all of, i mean kitty pride's a good character but if you're trying to sell the x-men as a concept focusing as on her as the most you know, as the center of it, it, it there were a number of things but it was mostly uh they didn't have you know the best people there 
in creative control of the story. And so when when we got two years later, when Margaret sold this and, and hired us on, she and Sydney and Larry and Will, so four of like the main six people involved in making the show, had all been through Pride of the X-Men and watched it fail and said, we're not going to do this again. We're going to do the X-Men that we know. We're going to do it right. And she actually, it was in the contract, Marvel couldn't, I mean, she had final cut. She had final say on the stories. Marvel didn't. And that was that was just part of her deal. So we're going to put this on the air, but this time I'm going to, you know, be in charge of, of what stories get told. You know and what, that's... that's- I just real quick. I just want to say that's very very interesting because it's Pride of the X Men. If you're a fan, is a great bit of fan service. Oh, look at these X Men. I know these guys. I understand what's going on here. If you're not, it's not a great introduction. And and from what you're saying, it sounds like it was the result of people who love the X Men who knew the material, and it comes back to you saying that you weren't previously familiar with the x-men it sounds to me like you were the guy for the job because you didn't you didn't have that attachment you didn't have that uh your own personal expectations of what it should be like you had an outsider's perspective on what made them interesting well and just jumping in here quickly regarding pride of the x-men there were there were so many as we say cooks in the kitchen on that one meaning on the executive side of things, not on the, the, the creative side uh, with the artist and, and the writers and such. But if you watch it again, Wolverine is Australian. Yeah. Australian <laughs> oh, believe why me, that, a, that drove me nuts. Him, yeah. yeah, why did he have an Australian accent? <laughs> because Crocodile Dundee had come out, and it was a big hit. <laughs> Kids will like Australian accents. Make them Australian. So was, was that's that, the kind of interference they had to deal with. Yeah, oh, it was that kind of Hollywood think and businessman think and merchandising think that that drove the creative decisions on on Pride. And so even though they had good artists, uh, it, it it couldn't help. Oh, I was, well, quick, quickly to circle back around here, we started talking about Margaret Lesh as the person who was you know, behind the reason the show got made. As the show is hitting number one and maintaining number one for, for seasons on Fox Kids, she keeps going to the folks at Marvel and Fox saying, you need to make a live-action film. There is an audience now for this. You need to end. No, no thanks. No, no thanks. No, no thanks. We don't see it. We don't see it. It wasn't until the show was off the air for three years before they went forward with it. In other words, yeah, it, it's maddening to, to look back it, at some of these yeah, decisions. And, and show how short-sighted people were. But that's you know, it's part of the business. It was great. Sure. In a way, it was great because we were allowed in to make the show with, as you were saying, no expectations. And we were able to be, be the first. And luckily... It caught on. I'm sure if it was a bad show, it wouldn't have caught on, and somebody else would have been, would have in, a, in effect ended up being the first real, you know, Marvel uh, show that worked. But it just for us, it was kind of, it was kind of a gift because we didn't we didn't have the whole, you know, we didn't have a hundred million people checking out, uh, you know, our rough drafts and uh, you know going on about what they would have done instead. We were pretty much left to our own devices. Now, you mentioned merchandising uh, as far as one of the concerns of the the people putting Pride of the X-Men into production, Uh, but Toy Biz had an X-Men toy line that started in 91. Uh 
and was never directly tied into the show, but certainly, you know, as a collector and as a fan of the show, I felt like I could see the influence of the show on the toy line. Was that ever, was there ever any interaction there between you guys and Toy Biz? Was there any synergy there? Sure. There's a little history there. Uh, Ari Arad, who became this, this massive uh, force at, at Marvel, mm-hmm. you know, owned Toy Biz, and they, uh, at the time, when we got started, uh, a separate company, and there was no, you know, they had an old, uh, you know, line of toys, I guess, from 91. So when we started doing the, the writing the show in 92 and, and drawing it, there was no real toy deal, merchandising deal in place. So we were able to create the first 13 episodes pretty much without any merchandising influence whatsoever. Towards the very end of the of writing the scripts, I got a call from Ari saying, well, look, we still have, we've got half a dozen toys here. Uh, we've got like a Wolverine phone and uh, <laughs> curtains and, and walkie-talkies. And we're saying, well, you know what? The way we're writing Wolverine, he wouldn't use a phone with his head on it. <laughs> you know? And it just, it just, it was just, it was a culture clash. And luckily, you know, in some of our, some of the jobs we've had, the toy people are paying for most of it, and they have final say. Sure. And they could have just said, no, sorry, there's going to be a Wolverine phone in every mm-hmm. episode, yep. and the curtains, and, you know, whatever. And luckily, they didn't have that kind of leverage. He just kind of had to ask as a favor. And we said, well, look, you've got a Blackbird. We will put extra shot, a couple extra shots of the Blackbird in wherever we can. And if that helps, great. We, I think there was a, a maybe a motor. We couldn't put Wolverine on a motorcycle because of broadcast standards. Mm. If we did, we'd have to give him a full face helmet with a, with with eye with a visor, and it just would look kind of goofy. Uh, so we, that's why we gave him a Jeep. But there, you know, th- those kind of questions went back and forth. So yes, Toy Biz would hoped to have been involved, and then they and Marvel. You know, one bought the other, whatever. When when they became the same company, they really exploded with you know toy you know, merchandise from the show. But that was after the show was successful. Well, and that's uh, it's funny because the line, the, they they had a generic X Men line in ninety one and ninety two. It got a little more colorful. It started to reflect the aesthetics of the show a little bit. But then mm-hmm. in ninety three is when all of a sudden it blew up, and there were like five waves of figures that year and they were all just about all characters that had been on the show and it's funny that you know nowadays well for the past 20 or so years probably the the toy companies have had so much control over what makes it to the screen animation wise but at the time with the arrangement you just described the toy line was still massively successful without having that control over the show yeah, and that's what we try to tell uh, p- people that do merchandise because we have this comes up almost every show that we're end up in charge of because if you're just writing an episode you don't have to deal with it but if you're the supervising producer or story editor or whatever you have to deal with the network executives and the production executives and the artists and and also if it's a big toy show uh, the, the toy company and what you want to tell them and there's there in the book there are four or five. Uh-huh. examples of this where the people that are doing the merchandising 
somehow have this idea that they know better how to tell stories or to or to or to, to to make the show something exciting enough that their that their stuff will sell. Sure. And so we want to tell them is that you know, we don't know how you get you know your four feet of space in uh, in Walmart, or we don't know you know how how, how to make a really good uh, advertisement, you know, television ad or or uh, internet ad, whatever. We don't know how to market your toys. We don't know how to uh, design your toys. We wouldn't tell you how, you know, what any of that. Just the same way, you don't know how to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And if you will just let us make the most amazing show we can, uh, even if there are no, you know, Wolverine towels in close-up, people will go buy your stuff because they love the show. It's yeah. not because they necessarily they've seen the, the, the toy in the show. That's kind of... Simplistic. I mean, mm-hmm. it could work on some shows, but it's certainly not going to work on an adult show like X Men. Please, 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 just let us write the stories and make it a hit, and then you know, market it any way you like. But don't, please, don't tell us what the photograph and and how to resolve the stories because they, they ninety nine times of a hundred, they just don't have a clue. They're just thinking about about product placement and that. Off the most of the time that doesn't work. Well, even as a kid, uh, that's that kind of stuff is so transparent. Uh, you, yeah. you just recognize it. But before we get any further, you mentioned the book. Uh, we got to plug the book previously on X Men, which I love that title because uh, that show opened previously on X Men. It was so exciting, and the voice of, who did who did the previously on X Men voiceover? Do you? I think I think it was Norm. I think it was Cyclops. Norm, We've had to go back and Norm ask, Spencer, ask the voice talent cast because they were all up in Toronto, and we we still haven't had a chance to meet them. Uh, and we're hoping that's going to change the next few months. But talking with them is like, oh yeah, who did do that? They had to sort of remember back themselves. It was yeah, so it, it was so serious, and it grabbed your attention so much as soon as things started. Uh, it it just felt like oh I better pay attention to this even though I watched <laughs> the last episode, uh, but the the book is available where uh, we it's available on Amazon uh, uh, previously on X Men the making of an animated series uh, also if it's purchased if you buy it through sorry on Amazon it's you can get a hard copy for a few dollars less you get a soft copy uh, it's or also Kindle. available on Kindle. Um, also through the publishing house, which is Jacobs Brown Media Group. That's one long word, but jacobsbrownmediagroup.com. If you buy the book through them, uh, you will get a copy that Eric will have signed. And, and it's a hardback copy, and you'll get. And I, I've signed like six hundred of them for them. <laughs> oh so, my gosh! So they 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 have a stack, and if you if you buy it directly, you'll get, you'll be signed copy. And um, if, if for folks who need to find this information, we we have a. Our own web web address is xmentas.com for xmentheanimatedseries.com that we run, uh, and we have that information up there. Yeah, and, yeah, and on, on that there are a couple hundred. Uh, you know, there's uh, uh, just blog, you know, I mean, notes about uh, notes about stuff that we did making the show and art and, and various. Uh, and we'll put this podcast on there too. Yeah, that's right. And we always, when, whenever we do a podcast, we make a connection there online, so that's that's a good place to catch up with us. Awesome, very cool, and we'll we'll plug that again before we wrap things up at the end of the show because we've definitely got to we've got to put the book over because the book looks awesome. Um, so, 
I want to talk about, uh, you've mentioned several times, this being an adult cartoon, a mature cartoon, cartoon, and it is because it retained the themes. You know, X-Men has always been a very socially conscious franchise. Uh, It it started with the intention of representing uh, the civil rights movement to a wider group of people than might understand it. And over the years, it's taken on many, many different... Uh, very mature intellectual themes, and you guys kept that up in this afternoon cartoon. Uh, and, and certainly, again, that generation that was introduced to the X-Men through this cartoon uh, certainly expanded some consciousness there. Uh, but one specific episode that I, that I had to ask you guys about, and I didn't want to get too much into the, remember when this happened? That was awesome. But one man's worth, oh, yeah. which oh, oh. is my, my, the, my favorite episode. Uh, well, the episode where they travel the the bad guys travel back in time and kill Professor X on this afternoon cartoon, and even at you know even at the even being in high school age at that point, it blew my mind that that was being presented in such a way. Uh, how how did that happen? How did you guys pull that off? Well, uh, to be honest, uh, you know, we, we look for the most intense stories involving the characters that we could find uh, and happy to, you know, to steal a little from favorite books and favorite movies and favorite television shows. Sure. And so it was one day... Uh, I was just trying to think. Okay, what? I mean, Professor X was a very was a favorite character of mine because he had to deal with a whole group of people and keep them kind of on on track. And uh, so, see what what would best show this person's contribution to the X Men and why the X Men exist and and you know why are they here? What would best get across why they're here? So, oh wait a minute, what if what if they never were came together. What if Xavier never was able to do this? What if he was stopped before he was able to create the X-Men? How would that have changed the world that would show uh, his, his effect on the planet through not being there? And, you know, there's, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, uses that uh, for the one of the most intense sequences in it, and the Star Trek episode, uh, City on the Edge of Forever uses that. Mm-hmm. This one person is taken out of the, uh, the mix, then Everything changes, and different people win wars, and and different things happen just for the lack of, you know, one person's effect. And so that was uh, how the story came uh, to mind. And then this is one of the few cases where the books loved that so much. The Bob Harris at Marvel loved that so much that they went a couple years later and used it uh, as a basis or as an inspiration for Age of Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the best-known, most popular story arcs of all time with the X-Men. I, I you know, I kind of wish, I, I wish that Marvel had an animation division today the way that DC does, and oh, would, yeah. would produce these wonderful animated features, you know, adapting stuff like Age of Apocalypse or whatever. I, I would love to see, because, Mar- I mean, Marvel... Uh, well, like I said, the X-Men are my guys, and there's so many great stories there that we're never going to see 
uh, adapted in a modern form that that we're missing out on. I feel like. I will say I, I miss all the D, I, I miss seeing what DC releases on their directed video, uh, directed DVD uh, animation movies. It's like, dang! I wish Marvel would yeah, jump yeah, on that. Yeah, they, they figured they figured out how to to do that. And that dear friend of ours, one of our favorite people to work with over the last thirty years, Alan Burnett, who just recently retired. Oh yeah, yeah. He was involved with Batman from the day you know from the first year that it was produced at Fox. He was brought in a few months. Uh, after a few months when they were having creative troubles and they needed like the calmest hand in Hollywood to handle it. He was brought in to supervise and had a hand in either the writing or the supervision of every one of those DC direct, you know, direct videos. And that's the reason. I mean, I think that's the reason for the continuing quality. He had the absolute trust of Gene McCurdy who was head of the division and a wonderful lady gave me my first job. And it, they just, they realized they had something that they, they had an interest in this for, for, for decades and would continue to have an interest. Problem with us with X-Men was there were four or five little companies that were involved and rights were spread out all over and Marvel yeah. was going bankrupt. And, and as soon as it was, our show was done, it was just done. And there was nobody there to pick up the pieces. There been, there were a couple attempts at, you know, like Captain America DVDs and things. There were attempts at those feature-length animated DVDs, like in the in the late nineties. Yeah, yeah. But, um, they never had the direction at Marvel. Never had the the commitment there to to do them in any in any quantity or or, or in any continuity. Yeah, I remember them doing. Uh, I think the Ultimates. Uh, they did a couple of Ultimates features and a few other things. But yeah, you're, they they did. Uh, I think they did Planet Hulk. At one uh-huh. point, but but again, like you said, they felt very sporadic, and they didn't feel like they had the same uh, sort of quality control that DC's features have had. Yeah, exactly. Well, to get back to X Men, because that's what we're here talking about, not DC. <laughs> that's a different show. Um, uh, one other episode I wanted to ask you about real quick, and, and we'll get away from specific episodes: uh, the Lotus and the Steel, uh-huh. which uh, is it's the one I've watched probably the most. It's oh, really one okay. where Wolverine exiles himself basically, or retires from the X-Men, however you want to put it to the small village. Uh, and it feels like a very traditional sort of samurai Western, small scale, very personal type of story. Uh, what, where do you guys, first of all, do you guys remember specifics about that one? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, Mark and Michael Edens uh, were brothers that I knew in college who ended up working on probably 40 to 45 of the 76 episodes that we wrote, uh, either credited or uncredited. Uh, when we were in college, we um, we programmed the movies for the college, and we really loved uh, West cl- classic movies, westerns, uh, you know, heroic action films, and... Seven Samurai was way at the top for all three of oh, us. Yeah, yeah. So that was absolutely the no-brainer inspiration. Is it can we tell the Seven Samurai story of of a village under siege and and do they stand up or do they not? It's such a such a simple, core, emotionally connectable uh, situation that it always seems to work. You know, endless Magnificent Seven movies and TV shows. Sure. Uh, it's just it's just so good that. And then 
I don't know who it was, but one of, you know, somebody said, yeah, I think I've got a way in. And so we just had to get that set up at the beginning about why he was there. And then he's the perfect guy to rally a village. And, and, uh, so that was, that, that was the origin. That was where that kind of it was us from, from day one saying, can we ever tell uh, a seven samurai story that, that, uh, is that doesn't embarrass us that 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 is an homage to the original that we admire so much it's it's very powerful and you're right wolverine uh, you know aside from the fact that he's you know had his his uh eastern uh, background stories and whatnot really was the great right character for it because he had you know at the time in in 92 94 95 he was still mysterious yeah mm mm-hmm. And he was still very much that loner, serious character with a lot of angst. And it was very interesting to see him, you know, initially start off to leave, sort of leave the civilization he knew, only to find that he's the guy that kind of holds it together to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, I got to jump back in. I'm, I'm jumping in here, but I just have to point out when we were talking about One Man's Worth, which is one of my favorites as well, it, 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 it hit me in like a like a stick to the brain when, when Logan, when we see in the future that, that uh, Wolverine and Storm are a couple. It's mm. like, dang, because that's, that's been that season four opener, and this has been three years with the X-Men up until this point. But seeing them together in the alternate crappy future, you go, oh, my God, they'd be perfect together. <laughs> of course they would. It makes perfect sense. So for me, the tragedy was even more authentic when, when in keeping Professor X alive, they end up sacrificing their own their own true love and i realized that just felt so real yeah because i know yeah. he pines for, for gene and you know and, she, and storm has her issues but the two of them together it's like it was earned yeah. that the, moment the, was earned the the goddess and the self-loathing mongrel guy like it, oh, i really God. do love that pairing uh okay so uh you mentioned the voice talent being in toronto and that was one of the things i wanted to ask about when you're working with a voice cast like that uh what how is the how does the communication work is it is it basically just a matter of here's the script we want we trust these people to be talented enough to deliver the goods uh, eric's going to take lead yeah. on this but yeah. i just had to jump in remember back to 1992 and the technology <laughs> advanced yeah. as it was was they would literally literally record they would make extra cassette tape recordings and they would mail them to los angeles and toronto yeah you, you, you it was that you, primitive you couldn't just digitally pop uh, uh, a file over to us. Yeah, it had to. Fit. We we got cassette tapes uh, a week later. <laughs> yeah. Oh and my gosh. So what happened? So the way it worked was uh, once we got going. There's the whole story about the first pass they did at the show. It was such a different show that it was really awful. It was very. It was like Scooby Doo cartoony. Because there's a specific pool you, of talent in Canada. If you can and imagine, they're very good. If you can, ima- if you can imagine, they, I mean, they've done good work for you know on other shows. <laughs> It was just they didn't get we wanted X-Men to be like serious adult drama. Right. And so the first recording came back, and we just thought, oh, my God, the show's over. This is <laughs> we we're, we're, we're dead. We can't do this. Oh, this is no. over. And so we went, a bunch of us, not me, but Sid, Sidney Iwaner from Fox and Larry Houston, the supervising producer uh, artist, went up with a couple of Marvel guys and spent, like two weeks with them in Canada 
trying to get across. These are adults having adult dramatic uh, scenes, and these are movies, and get and recast some of it. But once once they got the pilot, once they got the first script right, and they got the tone of it, then it was it was pretty smooth sailing from there. Uh, and what we would do is we get the cassettes, we give our notes, and then for like for for week three. And just before they recorded week four, they would do retakes on on things that we had issues with on week three. And so we just we'd be a week ahead uh, on the notes, you know, or you know, so 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 that it was clunky and it was unfortunate. Luckily, uh, it was a great cast of really talented people that. And once they heard, once the word got out, there was this cool show. Like the best voice people in Canada, I mean, not the Toronto. You know, fought to get on it, so they all knew each other, and they all and it was very much the show to be on, which is cool to think about. Yeah, yeah. But so that so that that's why the quality was maintained, and a guy named Dan Hennessy, who's the voice director, you know, held it all together beautifully. We think. So. Uh, I would. I just want to jump in here too. Uh, the story is to be told about because X Men. We can look back on it now and go, oh yeah, X Men's the X Men, but there hadn't been an animated show voiced out of Canada that had been written like the X-Men, you know, and so the talent was just not, the, the folks that were coming in to, t- to do this were used to doing, again, as Eric said, more cartoony type voices. But I think it was Sidney Iwaner, uh with with Larry Houston up there getting the idea, you know what we need, because Toronto has a very thriving theater community, we need theater performers, we need thespians who've been on stage uh, to come in and try this. Yeah, who can, can, can handle Shakespeare and and handle some of the some of the speeches in this show? So they very specifically told the casting director look for people that are you know that are serious theater talents. Oh, that's very interesting, and yeah, that's a good point because at, by that time, uh, you, you didn't really have the more action based cartoons, and, and even then, you can't really compare the, the stuff I was talking about before those eighties eighties cartoons with X Men tonally, but especially by ninety two, you had you know Ninja Turtles and Animaniacs and Tiny Toons and a lot of stuff that you know it was ca- traditional cartoon stuff. It wasn't necessarily animated drama, I guess, for right. lack of a better term. Exactly, and so it was. It was a different thing. And luckily, they got it, and the the Net, Fox Network, who was basically had creative control, they really got it, and so they insisted. You know, so it's like they weren't gonna they weren't gonna put this on the air until it was the way that until it was right. And give them credit for that. They it was supposed to premiere in September along with Batman in '92, and between voice delays and animation delays because it wasn't coming back, you animated it well enough. Various things, the, the people at Fox just said, look, we'll, we'll, we'll bite the bullet and do put repeats on for four months and hold this off till January because we're not, we're not going to premiere this until it's right. And they, they did, and it ended up paying off to them you know, a hundredfold. But that's not an easy thing for an executive to do. Oh, all sure. Early. Advertisers and all the local networks, and saying, "Sorry, guys, you got reruns for four months." Well, and it was it was the right move because you know, as someone who watched, because I if if I'm correct, 
Didn't it debut on a on a, I think it was a Sunday. It debuted in primetime, didn't it? It did. Ah, oh, good memory. They they had a they had they had a sneak peek. She was smart. She said that she said, look, if we're going to be delayed, you know, we've got a couple episodes in the can. I mean, the others were struggling. Okay, we've got a couple we can show in October. Right and on Halloween, on, right on Halloween, exactly. Yes. She went to their prime time and you know, called in some favors and twisted some arms and got them to put it on at 7 o'clock. Which... Again, I'm going to jump in here. The, the Fox Kids Network it, it was a completely separate entity from the Fox Network. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. you, you would think they'd all be one big happy family, but they but weren't. But they're, they're various divisions, and one doesn't have to listen to the other. And so mm-hmm. Prime Time said, okay, 7 o'clock is kind of a slow time. Uh, it's Halloween. You know, nobody's going to be home. <laughs> yeah, kids nobody's going to be home anyway. Right. So <laughs> they, put it, they put it on, and it... People loved it, especially comic book people. And so the fact that it was then delayed till the 8th of January, as far as the grand, uh, you know, the, the proper premiere, just whetted everybody's appetite. Yeah. And something happened in between there. Uh, they had this Fox Kids Club promotion magazine, and they, they, they asked fans, okay, I don't know when they asked this, you know, maybe early in November. They asked, what, you know, what show a kids show over the last year was your favorite and whoever gets the most votes will have a special screening uh, on Thanksgiving. That's right. Uh, kids uh, kids schedule it was kids take over Fox. Kids take over Fox. So kids get to decide yeah. what half hour episode to put on for the special showing at Thanksgiving. And X Men kicked everybody's ass. It was like it was more than ever all the rest combined. Oh beautiful. So there was a second that was why there was a second little sneak preview before the proper uh, premiere in January. Well, we got to give her credit because that could have that could have been a career ender right there too, with all the little affiliate station, all the affiliate stations, and and everyone who who had bought into the idea we're going to have a Batman X Men action hour coming out this fall, and that's how we're going to move forward. But she managed to take real lemons and and turn it into this this kind of. Um, tsunami effect for for folks that no look you know advertisers and folks uh you can you can sell it all the way through as coming on it'll be the only brand new show in january that's coming out on the kid on any kids network then everyone else will be in reruns this will be a brand new fresh project yeah so she she, i mean she she said she would have had to uh, postpone it anyway and so she was stuck but she she flipped it and said oh no this is an opportunity and let's run with it and then you know it just it was a it, it, it took the network from number four to number one in about six weeks. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Uh, it's because I, I, I was absolutely inspired watching that. I, I, you know, at the time you haven't seen anything like that, and to see that those uh, first that first two parter was just mind blowing. All right, uh, before we get any further, I want to make sure you guys have time for one more little story session. A specific sure. thing I wanted to ask about, and then our oh, light, sure. our lightning round of questions from our from our <laughs> listeners. Okay, uh, the, for, this is the last thing I had to ask about because I mentioned to you guys at MomoCon that John Semper Jr. was a guest on the show. Sure. He was on episode uh, one ten of the podcast. You guys will be on episode two eighteen. Oh my goodness! Uh, and you had a crossover with the Spider Man animated series. Right. How did that go down, and what were the difficulties involved? Because I would imagine scheduling had to be a challenge. Yeah, they they uh, the biggest well, there are a couple three challenges. One is at the time Marvel had sold off various rights, and so 
every time you used like the tiniest character from somewhere, the lawyers had to triple check whether it was permitted or not. And our guy Larry Houston would sneak in people he shouldn't, you know, like Spider Man's wrists here or uh, Sass. Just the, uh, he would sneak in all sorts of cameos, dozens of them that he wasn't supposed to. But for the Spider Man one, they specifically had to ask, would Sony? I think they'd already sold the rights to Sony. Mm-hmm. Would they let our X Men people over into their? It was the same network, but different people owned rights to different characters. Okay, they worked up to the legal problems, and that was the biggest problem. Um, and then when they decided, because John just decided this would be a cool idea. He said, "It's it's the shows are next to each other. They're both hits." Uh, people love them, the people will appreciate a crossover. So he pitched it, it took a while, but they got the okay, and then he called me and Michael Edens, one of the, again, two Edens brothers who worked on so many shows, he just said, Eric, do you, do you have, do you want to, like a writer who knows the characters, you guys know these characters backwards and forwards, you know, you're 60 episodes in, whatever you are, maybe we'd even finished. Uh, would you come in and help me, you know, do the X-Men voices for the episode? So we said, sure, and we went in, and, and we were part of that. For We made time to be part of their production schedule, and they kind of did their productions in the normal way, and we sat in as the X-Men dialogue character people and, and just you know gave notes on, on the script and, and came up with the dialogue for the X-Men characters. But that was, that was kind of a, it was a learning experience for us, too. At first, it was fun, and John's, John's an old friend now, but we realized that when we did X-Men, we had all these people pretty much on the same page and wanting the same show. And even though it was hard work, it was very satisfying work. And once, once we got going, we were all, we were all pulling with the same oar, so to speak. Um, John had a much tougher time on Spider-Man. There were new people involved, uh, various executives with, that had clout that, were not involved, so there were there were four or five people in the room that each kind of felt like needed to be their show, and they all had different ideas for oh, it. So John, yeah. John was there fighting for the life of the show every episode, trying to hold this chaotic group of warring cats together, and just getting through episode by episode by episode. We so Michael Edens and I were able to look in and say, "My God, thank God, thank God, we had a." a show that went so well and it was such a, in effect, a happy crew that all saw it the same way and weren't at odds. And whereas, you know, John was like stumbling bloody out of every episode and he'll tell you the same thing. It was probably the hardest job he ever had holding that show together. Well, it's, and that's the thing is it's, I feel like when you get to Spider-Man, that's a whole other level of, brand recognition and expectation and exactly it, it's, yeah. he i mean he's he's the guy that is marvel's guy even now after everything that they've done in the movies spider-man came in and still managed to be this enormous deal just because he's spider-man yeah all right eric and julia are you ready Sure. For, the, for the lightning round of questions from our Needless Things podcast Facebook group. Woohoo! <laughs> okay. Uh, number one is from our friend Lucas. Uh, why weren't all of the X-Men from the blue and gold teams introduced in the first few episodes? 
I'm gonna jumping in here quickly. Just the sheer number of them. Yeah. Yeah. A challenge with with a show like specifically X Men. You know, when when the call came in '92, there were already what 25, 30 years of books that existed that had various members come and go and various teams, you know, come together and not. So when you had to sit down and and with the folks at Marvel and decide who was going to be on the core team. Yeah. Interestingly, um, it, it, it evolved even after you guys made that decision. Um, but it was specifically you got to you got to you got to nail it down. You got to narrow it because, as as you can tell, you know, watching some of these shows, it's hard to tell a twenty two minute story that's interesting and involved and has some twists and has character moments with more than four or five people. And it's certainly pretty hard to have a dozen people in a scene and service everybody so they're not all just sitting around not doing something. It's 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 easier for Batman or Spider-Man because you're starting out with a single person and you're adding villains or you're adding complications, and so it's not an issue. But you start with eight or nine X-Men, it's really hard. To, if we'd started out with even more... Thirty. <laughs> You know, yeah. yeah, so it just would have be, it becomes ungainly if you if you kind of try to I guess if you did a data analysis and look through the through the through the years, there were episodes where we would just show have three or four people show up and yeah. and and narrow it to that. Or if we showed all nine people, we'd have something going on with three of them, something going on somewhere else with three of them, something going on third place with three of them, and go back and forth so we didn't have to lug this football team of characters around and try to make sense of why they were all there. Uh, so to, to answer his question, everybody, you know, we talked at the beginning with Marvel about keeping the team small, and they did, And but there were a couple of characters that kind of insinuated themselves into it that, that we just couldn't help but writing, and Beast was one of them. He wasn't supposed to be a main character. That's why we put him in jail the first, the first season at the start, because we thought we'd see him in episode one or two, and then we wouldn't see him for nine or ten episodes, and we'd focus on the main group. But we all liked writing him so much that he kind of pushed himself into becoming a main character. And so there were a couple of things like that that happened, just out of you know a character being strong enough for the writers wanting, needing to use him to make sense out of the out of the show. But we just we picked. We would have probably chosen fewer. We certainly would would have chosen fewer rather than more. Sure. But in picking the ones we did, it was just who who's different enough from each other. We didn't want four gruff guys. Didn't want Wolverine and and Cable and Bishop and, and Thunderbird, you know, growling at each other. <laughs> sure. We, we, want, we want eight completely different human beings and if they aren't different enough from each other, then they need to get tossed. Because uh, we don't need two of anybody. We just need we need six, seven, eight completely individual individuals that don't overlap that are different and that we ended up with what we thought was an excellent balance and i'll say this it looking at the the billion dollar billion dollar film franchise that that has happened they use the same team they pick the same team yeah. mostly yeah. The animated yeah. series so i yeah. think that's so, so i think we, we found a good balance that leads into uh nathan's question which is uh why they never changed the lineup uh, interestingly, for Nathan's sake, interestingly, in what was to be ex- episode 65, we were gonna. <laughs> uh, there Thanks. were there dark were, secrets here. Dark, dark secrets. secrets. 
we were going to end the series after 65 episodes and the executive said, let's go with a huge bang and do a four-parter where the universe is at stake and it's beyond good and evil was the, the name of it for four episodes. Well, that's right, four episodes, yeah. And what we plan to do to, for, to have the show God of the Big Bang is by the end of those four episodes, the end of 88 minutes, five of the X-Men would leave and four new people would join as the X-Men and our farewell to the team was, look, there's a brand new team in place. Somebody else, you know, make a series with them. Yeah, yeah. And what happened was we'd written the whole script and set up for, I think it was Psylocke, Bishop, Shard, and Archangel to join the team and for... Storm, Storm Gene and Scott, Jubilee and Xavier. And Xavier all to leave. So five left, four were coming on, and we had written that all in and built the whole story to make sense about why five were leaving and why four were, were, were coming on. And then we were told, oh, sorry, we need 11 more episodes with the old team. Don't oh have gosh. it that way. <laughs> so, we had, so in midstream, we had to rewrite that story, and that's why Psylocke's in it, and that's why Archangel is prominent, and that's why Shard is prominent, yeah, because yeah. We want, we're going to have them be the new X team, and... And then we were told, "Sorry, you can't." And that was <laughs> that was frustrating because the story turned out okay, but it was a lot better when it ended up the way it, we planned it to end up. Also, a short answer there for for the friend who asked the question: uh, character design is, yeah. is also a factor. The, the budgets on on X Men were were extremely tight, and saying, "Well, let's just rotate the characters out and come up with five new ones." That means five new designs, right, five sure, new all kinds sure. of things. And also, think about your favorite shows that say Friends or something that last for 10 years. Nobody's wondering, you know, are we going to shift three or four of these guys out and come up with some new friends? Right. It's like once a, once a uh, television show is successful, they tend to want you to hold on to everybody that's successful. So it's it's kind of against the instincts of TV people to, to change out characters oh yeah if they'd taken chandler off of friends i would have stopped watching yeah. there you go. <laughs> uh okay bobby asks are there any characters or storylines you wanted to tackle but could not and it uh, sounds like that probably no it sounds like no. you guys had pretty free reign we did we really had free reign there were a couple tiny things happened oh okay i'm, I'm interrupting you go here, ahead. But, but a thing that most folks may not realize is uh the writing and the on the art side and the creation of X-Men, uh, even though everyone had real excitement behind it, uh, not a ton of faith. So Eric and all of us writers and the artists and stuff, they were everyone was signed to a 13-episode deal. To one season. One season, done and you're out. In which case, we were all out hustling for our next yeah, gigs we were the all, show was on the air. We were all let go before the second season was committed to. So we had about three months in between there where we didn't have work or and, we weren't oh. going to have in that case, it was also for Eric and, and Mark Edens at our dining room table to plot out the arc of the of a single season for X-Men. It was to have ended uh, with, with Gene and Scott getting married right. and looking out into the sunset and thinking, oh, isn't that enough? You know, okay, that's a strong way to end, you know, but it leaves this world open to more stories. And if this is where it ends, well, this is where it ends. But, yeah. 
But then Eric gets a call. Yay, we have a second season. Come back, people. So people came back. Most of us were able to come back. And so there's a little hint there that was done late in production. Yeah. At the very, very end of the first season where there's a little hint of Mr. Sinister. That was not in the original draft. Yeah. That was when they first drew it. We wrote it. We drew it. It was just going to end there with they're going to get married. How wonderful. And then we were all... Damn! Now we got another. So we got, oh, great, damn, no, but- wonderful. <laughs> we get to do another season, and and so what we in the interim before we started before we got the next season written, we were laying it out, and we had an idea that that Scott and Gina are now married, and that she should start out the season seven months pregnant, and they have a double a double mutant baby, oh, and that oh. was that's what what we were going to go with the first at the second season. And that we got a negative reaction from everybody <laughs> on that. From Marvel, from the Fox, from all of our usually supportive creative friends. They said, guys, Gene running around fighting the supervillains in spandex with a huge baby bump is not going to work. So that's why Sinister was there as the person that, that, that undid their, their wedding. Oh, sure. Then yeah. they never had a baby. And that, that, was, all, that was all retrofit retrofitted. Oh, wow. And more secrets. Morph was supposed to stay dead. Supposed to stay he dead. Was supposed to stay dead. Oh, was, I always wondered about that. Yeah, that was a big deal. That that uh, the death of a character that the audience can can love. Yeah, happens, and it shows you that the stakes are real. The yeah. stakes in this world are real. And we fought for that. And so. at the end of the first thirteen episodes, he he, he remains was, dead. He remains he dies dead. And he's gone. And then what happened was we're starting to write the second season, and the network has shown. You know, has shown like eight of the episodes uh, on the air, and they do a they do a poll, they uh, focus, fo- focus group. Uh oh, kids. Yep. Say, okay, who's your favorite episode? <laughs> who's your favorite character through eight episodes? And morph one hands down, <laughs> and that's that's why he came back damaged because he was supposed to stay dead. But Eric got the call saying, "Look, I know you went to a lot of trouble, and I know what this means." But, <laughs> but so we have to bring him back. But so if we had to bring him back, we brought him back with PTSD. Yeah, and yeah. screwing the X Men. So that was that was why he came back, and that's why he came back because because the, the fans spoke. Yeah. Wow, that's really neat. I, I I had no idea, and that's that's in the book, right? It's in, got it's it. in the it's book. In the <laughs> okay, we got two more, and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, Sam Koji Hale, uh, director of Yamasong, which is a puppetry based movie. Um, oh. He lived in Japan when the X-Men cartoon came out and sent me a YouTube video of the Japanese opening, which I assume you've seen. Oh, we yeah. have seen that. Spe- wow. It's spectacular. Yeah. I, the moon. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I'd never seen it. Were there other different openings in different regions? Not that we're not that we're aware of that. Would, the Japanese are so big into animation. Yeah. I'm sure that's why they did that. But, but uh, and also they they could never afford to maintain that the, <laughs> in the right. production. Of it. But still, that was that was wonderful. And we haven't seen other we haven't seen any other ones besides that. And uh, last one, which is it's it was two questions, but they're essentially very similar things. Uh, it's about Gambit and Storm's uh, voice actors. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, the 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 their gambit is more just. I think the guy started getting a lot of work. Uh, he was the one guy that got work down here in Hollywood, and so uh, after a few, after a couple three years 
the original Chris Potter left uh, the show. I don't know under what circumstances or why. And uh, he was one one of the few actors I wasn't able to interview, so I I don't know the answer to why he moved on. But we do know the answer to the storm question, and that again is in the book. And, and <laughs> would you like to know there were three storms. Yes. That, that recorded the first season. Yes. And uh, the reason it was ended up being a political question, and that comes to we had done the X Men and its voiceover people, and we're we're not used to worrying about details about ethnicity and things like that. Like as somebody said, you know, Bart Simpson's a middle aged woman. Right. Right. So it just, I don't think it occurred to anybody in the production that there was an issue in that we got the best voice, we thought we got the best voices we could get. We had just that open casting for everybody up in Toronto. And then as the show was about to premiere, someone down here in Hollywood realized, oh damn, the one African-American regular character we got is is a white uh, Canadian woman. And so this could be a problem. So they frantically re-recorded Storm's voice with an American actress down here, a black American actress. Iona Morris, I believe. Iona Morris, yeah, yeah you're, with, you're with, with an African-American uh, actress. And her voice ran uh, for the first season. And then, typical with Chaim Saban and his, his tight, tightness with a penny, <laughs> one of the reasons... the prime, the reason, primary reason we went to Canada for voices, they don't get paid residuals. You know, uh, those will get, they'll get a little extra. Oh, okay. But America, for 25 years, you know, the character, the people on the, the voice Batman here in the U.S. that are that are uh, uh, actors guild, screen actors guild, they forever will be get small paychecks every time Batman shows. And it, they become smaller and smaller, but it's a bookkeeping thing, and it runs into. If it's a hit, it runs into money. If it's not a hit, it doesn't. It's not a deal. But so, in, so what Chaim Saban did was, as soon as the first step, the season was over, and Storm had played once, he he had a casting call in Canada to hire uh, an African Canadian actress. So there would be a black actress, but it would be an actress that he didn't have to pay residuals to. So they paid to record Storm three times. Yep. Oh, my gosh. And all three recordings were fine. I mean, the first actress, that the first the white Canadian actress that did Storm first was wonderful. And Yona Morris did a good job. But it was all to do first with politics, then with money, because uh, they didn't want to have an American actor that would have to be paid residuals forever uh, wow. on the cast. So that's, so now that's how the third, the third storm was wonderful. Yes. Alison Seeley Smith uh, is actually from Barbados, happened to be up in Toronto there, had moved there in her twenties. And so, you know, comes by her, her regal sounding uh, voice uh, you know, properly. I mean, she, and she, uh, wonderful, you know, wonderful mm-hmm. lady, but yeah, and she was kind of thrown into this, not knowing, you know, why? Why are the first two not? You know, why right. are the first two not? It was just, it was politics and money. Well, and you said three storms, so I'm obligated to say, just like in Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> <laughs> I have Very to. It's my favorite movie. I have to reference it, or Very people nice. would have called me Very out. Uh, you guys, I I think I think we're good. How do you feel? Okay. Oh, good. All we right. gotta we gotta plug the book one more time though. 
Okay, David. Yeah, well, absolutely. Previously on X-Men. <laughs> the making of an animated series. Yeah. By yeah. Eric Lee Wald. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, and I think you were going to put the link up, uh, Dave, I remember, on, on your... Um, I'll have it in uh, the show notes, and I'll have it up on Instagram and everywhere else. Right. Great. And we are... Um, so, Amazon. Also, jacobsbrownmediagroup.com. Yeah. You can get a signed copy. And we are we are available at xmentas.com. And we are on Twitter at X-Men TAS on Twitter and uh, Instagram X-Men TAS 92. So we're trying. We're trying to get the word out because it's 25 years. That's what's killed me. It's been 25 years. It couldn't have been, but it was. But So that's uh, part of what um, made me poke Eric into writing the book in the first place. Yeah. Well, Eric and Julia, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. I really have enjoyed talking to you guys. And... I would love to have you back on when you publish previously on Exo Squad. Oh, uh, that I don't know if we told you, but that's what that's what we did in the in the downtime between season one and season two of X Men. We started Exo Squad. I, I would love to have you back on again to talk about Exo Squad and your other projects. That'd be one, yeah, and and uh, and you know, Mark and Michael Edens, who are the heart and soul of Exo Squad, mm-hmm. stayed on all fifty-two episodes. They know where all the bodies are buried. They, they, even know, they even know how the series was supposed to end. They did 52. They had written 65. Oh, wow. And deep dive, the, deep dive. The, the yeah. last 13, Mark had laid out the last 13 about how it was all going to resolve, and then Universal, for some reason, decided not to produce the last 13. So, But he, we'll say no more. Yeah, he, he's, he's, got all, he's got all the dirt. He knows we'll, where it was going. We'll save that for the Exo Squad cast. Perfect. Got it. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. What a couple of absolutely delightful people. It's, I don't know why, but it's always amazing to me when folks, creative folks that had a hand in something that I love are just absolutely down to earth and pleasant and wonderful. Uh, But I I had a great time talking to them. I hope you guys had a great time listening. Uh, As always, if you enjoy the music on the show, then you need to go to lasexoflex.com and mysterymenofsurf.com, and you can check out all the music there. Go to needlessthingspodcast.com. Click on that big Amazon box. Buy the books that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, The Joy of Joe and Previously on X-Men and uh, buy yourself a couple of great books I don't know what else have I got what else is going on a needless summer will continue with next month's needless things podcast needless commentary I'm not going to reveal it yet uh, but the next two commentaries are tremendous and technically September is part of summer I, I always get I can't keep track of when these things happen. I've only been here 42 years. I can't remember when summer begins and ends, but September's needless commentary will happen while it is still summer. So I think I'm going to squeeze one more needless summer in there, which is good because uh, we've had some discussion about the movies we should do, and I didn't think we were going to have enough room. But I think we can get one more in there. I think we can slide it in. Uh... You guys, I love this. I love what I'm doing. Uh, the fact that you listen each and every week means so much to me. And uh, I'm only going to keep trying to get bigger and better. I love you guys.
Thank you for listening to the Needless Things podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vicks employee. Love you. Mean it. Uh Uh-huh.